You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Uh, this sermon series has been awesome. I want to really, really encourage you, if you have missed any of the last three weeks, I want to really encourage you to go on our church website and watch the sermons from the last three weeks. Three weeks ago, Pastor Capace taught on the opposite of wisdom. In church, what is the opposite of wisdom? Foolishness. Good job. And the next week, Pastor Capace taught on work. That sermon on work uh, may have been my favorite sermon I've ever heard Pastor Capace preach. Um, It was so practical. Of course, all of these are coming from the book of Proverbs, so they're topical sermons But boy, was it so practical and helpful. And then last week, he talked about money. And uh, that's a a sensitive subject, but I just love the way that he addressed it. So let me encourage you, if you missed, you were on vacation, or whatever the case may be, go on the church website and watch these three, because I really think you're going to be benefited in a great way. Today, what we want to do is take a step back and look at the subject of wisdom from afar. It's not going to be looking individually at a certain topic or subject, but we're going to look at the subject kind of stepping back. And I want us to observe, before we get into the Word of God, that every single religion has wisdom literature. So think about a religion that you're familiar with other than Christianity. For Christy and I, that is Buddhism, because we served for five years in Thailand and are going back soon. So Buddhism has wisdom literature, but every religion has wisdom literature. In most religions, though, wisdom is the way to God. It's the way to please God. Christianity is the only religion in which to enter it one must admit their foolishness. For most religions, wisdom is how to get right with God. But Paul teaches us in Romans that we don't get right with God. We're made right with God. You don't get right with God. You're made right with God. And you're made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. It is not our doing. It's the saving work of the all-wise, perfect Son of God. We are saved by grace through faith. In Christianity, grace is extended to those who are foolish. How many of you are thankful for that? Wisdom is not something we gain... To earn a spot at the table in heaven. We humbly come as foolish people admitting our foolishness. Jordan prayed a little earlier something about we're not worthy to even study the word of God. I'm sitting down there on the front row thinking, yeah, I'm not worthy to study the word of God and I have to get up and preach it. We're, we're, We're not worthy. We're foolish. We're human. I put this in your handouts. Wisdom without the cross of Christ 
is just religious self-help. Wisdom without the cross of Christ is just religious self-help. And then I put one of my favorite quotes. I have this stored away in my notebook with all of my favorite quotes. The gospel is good news, not good advice. Timothy Keller says, Advice is what we should do. News is a report of what was done for us. I think that kind of captures exactly what we're talking about here. As we enter the book of James this week, we will observe that wisdom in the Bible is an admonition given to God's children, not a recipe to become God's children. It's admonition given to God's children. It's not a recipe to become God's children. I want to take a moment and explain this from the Old Testament. Okay, so the Old Testament... God comes to one man and he says, through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. And that man's name was Abraham. And Abraham had many, many descendants, hundreds of years past. All of a sudden, God has allowed his people to be slaves in the country of Egypt. Now, these people are God's people and they're slaves in Egypt, which must mean that God has deserted them and God's not there, right? No. God was there. God allowed them to become slaves. And now God is getting ready in a mighty act to deliver his people from bondage to freedom. How is he going to do it? Well, God decides through ten plagues. And first five plagues, we see Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And second five plagues, we see God hardens his heart. God says, Yeah, Pharaoh probably would have given in, but no, I'm not done. I'm going to do ten plagues because I want everyone on earth to see it was God that saved you. It wasn't you. But there was a condition, wasn't there? What was it that the Israelites had to do for them to be saved? They had to take the blood from a spotless lamb and they had to paint it on the doorpost of their house And then and only then did God deliver them through the water into freedom. Now stay with me because what happens next? Well, what happens next is Moses goes up onto a mountain and God gives him the what? The commandments. So the commandments were not given to the people of Israel to save them. No, no, no. At the very beginning of the commandments, God says... I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery. You see, the commandments were instructions for God's people how to live in freedom. And that is what the book of Proverbs is. That is what the book of James is. It is wisdom. The Apostle Paul calls this process sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we are made more like Jesus. We are conformed to the image of his son. And this process is a lifelong thing. We are saved by grace through faith. And then through the word of God, we are sanctified. And so in summary of my introduction here, I want you to look up at the board. Sanctification without justification is self-righteousness. Sanctification without justification 
is you doing righteousness on your own. The gospel teaches us that Jesus doesn't help us become better versions of ourselves. We become born again. We become new creatures. We are regenerated. Let's look at the book of James today as we study this wisdom from afar. Many people call the book of James the Proverbs of the New Testament. There's a lot of metaphors in it, and as we'll see here in a minute. We learn the story of James from the book of Acts and also Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Jesus was, you all know, the half-brother of Jesus. He was the half-brother of Jesus. And he pastored the mother church in Jerusalem for 20 years until he was brutally murdered. James was a martyr. And James is writing this letter to the church in Jerusalem who is under great persecution. Now you might ask the question, why were they under persecution? And I really hate to do history in church on Sunday morning, but if you'll allow me, let's open our history books for just a minute because it's going to change the way we look at this book. You ready? Okay. Here's our history lesson for today. Jerusalem, obviously, was the capital of Israel. And Israel was in the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire had dominion over the majority of the world at that time. And the Roman Empire had emperors. Now, most of you have heard of some of these emperors' names over the years. From the time that Jesus was born all the way through the writing of the scriptures, we have Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Julius Caesar, Claudius, Nero. And these emperors were viewed by the people in the Roman Empire as deity. How many of you think our president is God? No, we we don't believe that here, but guess what? They actually believe that in Thailand. If you travel to Thailand, and some of you will here in a couple years when you come see me and Christy, on the, on the money, you're going to see Pajau Naihua, which means God lives in his head. So in Thailand, they believe that the king of Thailand is deity. And that's exactly what the people in the Roman Empire believed about these emperors. In fact, on their coins, inscripted on their coins, was Caesar Augustus, son of God. If you had asked anyone during the time of Jesus, who's the son of God, they would have said, well, duh, Tiberius. And now there's this guy in the Roman Empire going around saying, I'm the son of God. And now this guy is crucified and you've got these followers going around and they're saying, we believe with all of our heart and we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But it wasn't just... Excuse me, my microphone's falling off. It wasn't just the Roman Empire. It was also the state of Israel. You see, these different countries in the Roman Empire had kings. You've heard of King Herod, king of Israel. And these kings that were over Israel were puppets to the emperors of Rome. 
As long as they got the taxes, as long as they did everything that they were supposed to do, the emperors of Rome said to all these different kings, you do what you want to do. And so in Israel, there was a state religion, and the state religion in Israel was, anybody want to take a guess? Judaism. If you went against the state, if you tried to start your own religion, the state had the authority and the power given to them by the emperor of Rome to do whatever they wanted. And now we see how James is brutally murdered, the stepbrother of Jesus, because he is preaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But that's not all. At this same time, there was great famine going on in Jerusalem. So these Christians, who were Jewish people, were suffering persecution from their neighbors because they were Christians, and they were suffering great famine. They were poor, they were destitute. And Paul, excuse me, James, writes this letter to the Christians in Jerusalem to encourage them. Count it joy when you enter into temptation, when you enter into trials and testing, and when you go through a hard time. Let's read it together. It's going to take us a little while to read through this chapter, so I'm going to really encourage you to try and stay with me. This is going to be a little bit of a unique sermon because the introduction is going to take up most of our time. So I'd like for you to really hang in there with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, we don't really use the word steadfastness today. This word has the, the idea of consistency. How many of you would admit this morning that your Christian life is not consistent? Would you raise your hands? I, I think we all should have our hands up. Uh, I, as many of you know, am an extrovert. I'm an optimist. My wife is polar opposite, which is why God gave her to me. This is my Christian life for my whole Christian life. Oh, I want to do this. And Christy's like, and eh, Scott, let's count the cost a little bit here. No, I, no, this is what I want to do. Okay. And then, boom, fall on my face. Oh, I'm going to try this. Oh, boom. Inconsistent. What James is saying to the church in Jerusalem is when you suffer trials, when you go through a difficult time, it's going to reveal where your faith lies, and that is going to create a consistency in your life. Let's look at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask who, church? God who gives generously to all without reproach. This word reproach means that someone is made to feel stupid for having asked. God doesn't make you feel stupid when you ask for wisdom. God wants you to ask for wisdom because God loves it when we come to him in humility because God exalts who? The humble. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. This idea of double-mindedness means they have two loyalties. They trust in God, but they also have a backup plan. And God says, when you come to me and ask for wisdom... You, you come believing that I'm the source of wisdom, that you're foolish, that you need wisdom, and that I'm the only one who can give it to you, and that I will give it to you because he is a God who keeps his promises. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What in the world does this mean? I love this commentary on this verse that I read this week. Quote, Christians who experience poverty are to take pride in their high position as believers. Wealthy believers, on the other hand, should take pride not in their possessions, but in the fact that God has humbled them and given them a godly value system so that they now realize how transitory life and wealth are. That's a pretty good uh, paraphrase of this verse. Verse number 10, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life. Now, the English Standard Version uses the word crown. It might be better to use the word wreath. A wreath in this day, in James's day, was something that they would award to either someone who was victorious in battle or someone who was victorious in sport. And the idea behind this verse, from what I can tell, it's like an endowment. You and I receive eternal life when? Well, we don't receive eternal life after we die. We receive eternal life the minute we're saved. We are given eternal life the moment we're saved. But we begin to reap the benefits of that eternal life as we are sanctified, as we grow in the Lord. Verse number 13. Let no one say he is tempted. When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. If I was to ask you this morning, what is your best definition of sin, what would you give me as your definition? Here's mine. Here's my definition. Sin is any time we rely on something other than God and his word to fulfill the longings of our heart, to make us happy. And at the very root of that is a mistrust that God has our best interests in mind. We think God doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to do what I want to do because I know what's best. That's sin. And God never tempts you to do sin because God wants you to trust him. God allows you to experience temptation. God allowed his own son to suffer temptation. But God never tempts. Verse 14, but each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed. These two words I want you to put in the front of your brain and hang on to for the rest of the sermon. Lured and enticed. These words are hunting terms. 
How many of you men and women like to hunt? Men and women, how many of you like to hunt? Would you raise your hand? I asked in the first service, how many of you men like to hunt? And some of the women were like, I do too. So men and women, if you like to hunt. These are hunting terms. So I want you to picture that there's this poor sappy animal that's about to get killed. And he's being lured into this trap. That's what you and I look like when we're experiencing temptation. Like poor sappy animals that are about to get, boom, pounced on. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And now we have a very interesting metaphor. Now, desire is a mother. What's the mother's name? Her name is desire. She's about to give birth to a baby. What's the baby's name? Sin. Every time desire makes a baby, the baby is always sin. That's, that's the metaphor here. That's what, that's what James is trying to teach us. Sin comes from desire. And we're going to talk about a little later on more about this topic of desiring. But when you and I do the thing that we desire, and that thing is apart from what God has instructed us to do, and we believe it because we believe the lie of Satan, it's always going to end in death. Then desire when it Uh, uh, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death listen to this church do not be deceived why are you and i deceived because we're lured and enticed by our desires and we give in why do we give in because we don't have wisdom do not be deceived my beloved brothers Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What did I tell us earlier that you and I are like as Christians? We are inconsistent. Did you know that God's shadow never moves, James says? Well, why doesn't his shadow move? He never moves. He never changes. He's trustworthy. He's worthy of trust. Because he never moves, he never changes. Wow. Of God's own will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit, where the New Living Translation says, prized possession of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Hear this, church. Your anger never accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. Never. Well, I'm just going to tell her what I think. I'm going to let him know who's boss. Quick question. How do you respond to anger? When someone yells at you, do you quickly desire to do exactly what they're yelling at you about? Is that how you respond to anger? Probably not. Not me either. Anger never produces righteousness. In fact, it always does the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish. It's foolishness. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness... The implanted word. Would you in your Bibles underline the words, receive with meekness. 
the implanted word. We are saved when we humble ourselves and come to God for saving, for salvation. And we are sanctified when we come to his word in, in humility and in, in meekness. Verse number 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and once he forgets what he was like, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now what is this talking about? Now, in James' day, they didn't have mirrors like we had today. It would have been some kind of polished uh, metal. But same idea, we have a mirror. And here's something we need to observe about a mirror. A mirror never lies. Never lies. I looked in the, mor- I looked in the mirror this morning, and I saw my big mole on my nose. I saw a little spot under my nose where I cut it shaving last night. Uh, I-, I have some imperfections. Let's just say. And every time I look in the mirror, I observe my flaws. And it never lies to me. It's always just what I'm looking at. You ever have someone take a picture of you and you take the picture and you say, oh, don't post that one. I don't like the way I look there. Um, I I don't really like the way I look from that angle. Well, Well, let me explain something to you. From that angle, that's actually how you look. Yeah, uh, cameras don't lie, and and by the way, mirrors don't lie. When you look into a mirror, you're seeing, are you ready for it? You're seeing the truth. And if we're honest with each other, all of us have a little bit of us that we're not too fond of. Pastor James says that the word of God is the mirror for your soul. Can you imagine going a week without looking into a mirror? God's word is a mirror in which you and I can look into and see our imperfections. And understand how greatly we need the wisdom of God. Wow. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. There's that word deceives again. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled from God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their afflictions. Quick question. When you help an orphan or a widow, what can they do back for you? Yeah, that's the idea here. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. We've read through the first chapter of James. In chapters 2, 3, and 4, I want to encourage you to read those this week, James breaks down everything he's talked about in chapter 1. It's pretty cool. But today, what I want us to do in in the remainder of our time is I want to highlight three things 
in this first chapter that, to be honest with you, are convicting. I shared this sermon with Christy and Monica last night on our way home from For King and Country. And Monica said, wow, it sounds like it's going to be a convicting sermon. And to be honest with you, it is. But I've got some good news. We've got a soft landing at the end. But I'm really not going to... Uh, I'm not going to try to skirt around the difficult portions of this scripture. There are some portions of this scripture that are very convicting. And fortunately, the guy preaching um, has fallen and failed as much as you. So let's go through this together. What do you say? Number one, trials show us where we have placed our faith and hope. Trials show us where we have placed our faith and our hope. Now, there's an obvious thing we observe from reading this, and that is that without trials, we don't know where our faith and hope lie. You say, Scott, it's been a long time, and I, a long time going, and my life is a breeze right now. Well, first of all, get ready. But second of all, there's a good chance you don't know where your faith lies. That is the purpose of trials. We said earlier, trials does not mean that God is not there. Trials does not mean that you didn't have enough faith. There's a popular preaching going on in America right now called Prosperity Gospel. And if you name it, you can claim it. You go to God and you just say, God, take away my pain. Boom, he takes it away. God, give me wealth. Boom, he gives you wealth. Oh, and by the way, if you prayed that prayer and you weren't instantly healed, if you prayed that prayer and you didn't have bounties of money fall from the sky, you didn't have enough faith. Well, that's actually not at all what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that God allows His people to go through times of suffering and pain, but He promises never to leave them in their suffering. He promises that their suffering is not in vain. And he works all things together for good for his children. That is God's promise. Whatever you're going through this morning, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and tell you it's going to be okay. Tomorrow you're going to wake up and it's going to be gone. What I can stand firmly on is that God is holding you right now. He passionately loves you. And he's allowing this trial for your good. That's the promise we find in Scripture. So God allows suffering and heartache to help us recognize where our faith lies. We see here that James divides the room into two groups. He divides the room into those who are full of faith and those who doubt. Trials reveal to ourselves if our faith lies in God alone or in something else. If we have two loyalties, if we're double-minded, trials reveal that. Now there's no greater example in all of Scripture... Of someone who faced trials 
than Job. Oh my goodness. None of us have touched any kind of suffering like Job did. You guys know the story of Job, so I'm not going to go into the story of Job, but I want to make an observation from the story of Job. In Job, the picture is painted that there's a courtroom up in heaven and all of these angels come to God and God says to this Satan, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan says, does Job fear you for nothing. Now I believe that Satan has placed his finger smack dab on the problem of the human race. You and I do not love God for nothing. You and I do not love our neighbor as ourselves. We don't. We tend to serve for recognition. Love to be loved and give in hopes that we will get more in return. That is the reality of Scott Elliott Mercer. Right there. I serve for recognition. I love to be loved. And I give in hopes that I will get more in return. That is how I love my God and Savior. That's, that's what we find when we look in the mirror. We don't love God for who he is and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. The honest truth is we need help. We need help. Christy called me this week. She said, babe, are you home? I said, yeah. She said, well, I've got a little bit of a problem I need you to handle when I get home. I said, oh, what's up? She said, well, Kara, who is, by the way, our four-year-old, uh, she's throwing a royal fit. And I told her to do this, and she says, no, I'm not going to do that. And I said, okay, well, we'll handle it when you get home. And Kara comes in, and she's already crying. And I said, Kara, go ahead and sit on your bed. And I walked in there a little bit later, and I sat down with Kara, and I said, calm down. I said, I want to talk to you. I said, it sounds to me like you don't think mommy's a good mommy. She looked up at me, and she said, Mommy's a good mommy. I said, no. I said, I don't think you think mommy's a good mommy. She said, mommy's a good mommy. I said, Kara, I think that you want to be mommy. Said, no, daddy, I don't want to be mommy. I said, I think you want to be mommy. I said, Kara, this is the way I see it. Mommy loves you. She cares about you. And she told you to do this because she loves you. And you said, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. That tells me that you don't think she's a good mommy. No, daddy, she's a good mommy. I said, do you want to be mommy? No, I don't want to be mommy. And then my four-year-old said something that was so theologically deep, and she didn't even know it. She threw her hands up, and she said, I just can't help it. <laughs> you know what? She's right. Chloe can't help it. Kelsey can't help it. Kara can't help it. Max can't help it. By the way, uh, dad and mom can't help it. We need help. We need a savior. 
Because if little Kara continues to throw fits when she doesn't get her way, when she's 25 years old, she is going to be a nightmare. You and I need help. And Kara went through a trial this week. And what the trial that Kara went through taught Kara is that she doesn't trust her mommy. Trials reveal where your faith lies. In Scripture, who does God save? Well, He doesn't save the wise. He saves those who admit that they're a fool. We enter His kingdom by admitting our helplessness, and we continue in His kingdom by meekly accepting the word of truth. In your handout, we are saved by faith, and we live the Christian life by faith. Trials help us to see where our faith lies, what we have our hope in. And trials, God uses them to strengthen us and to help us be consistent, to help us rely and depend on him because that's what we need. We need to depend on God and we're not going to see that unless we go through trials and suffering. Number two, wisdom helps us to separate truth from lies. Wisdom is like that mirror, and wisdom helps us differentiate truth from lies. It helps us to see Satan's tactics. In verse 16, James says, don't be deceived. How are we deceived? By temptation. By our desires. Sin is me not believing God is God or that God should be God. It's when I play the role of little Kara and I say, God, you said this, but I don't believe that that is best. It's the lie of the garden. God said this, but you decide that that is best for you. You know what is best. Look in your handouts. At the root of every sin is belief in the lie that God does not have your best interest in mind. Think about that. At the root of every sin is a belief in the lie that God does not have your best interest in mind. Are you struggling with addiction this morning? At the very root is a belief in the lie that God doesn't have your best interest in mind. God absolutely does have your best interest in mind, but we are deceived and we act foolishness, which is why we need wisdom. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God gives wisdom to help us differentiate between what is real and what is not real. But he only gives wisdom to those who ask in faith. I'm going to ask us a question this morning, church. What does it say about someone when they ask God for wisdom? What does it say about someone when they ask God for wisdom? There's three things it says about someone when they ask God for wisdom. Number one, they believe God is the source for wisdom. You see, if you believe that there is wisdom apart from God and his word, then you will not seek wisdom from God and his word because you think there's another source for it. 
namely you. Number two, they believe they are foolish in need of wisdom. They believe they are foolish in need of wisdom. This is the person who asks for wisdom. The person that believes God is the source. The person who believes they're foolish and they need wisdom. Isaiah 5.21 Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The irony here is that those who think they are foolish seek wisdom while those who think they are wise become fools. Number three, they believe God will honor his word and give wisdom to those who ask. Do you believe, church, that God is a God who keeps his promises? (laughs) I believe he is. And he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask. And he's going to give and he's not going to make you feel stupid for asking. Number three, and this will be the last one. If we think ourselves to be religious, but. You can just fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill in the blank. I want to ask ourselves a question this morning. Is there a disconnect between what I think I am and what I am? Is there a difference between Scott, the way I see myself, and Scott, the way that God sees me. Now, the answer to this question is a resounding yes. There is always a difference between the way that you think that you are and the way that you actually are. We never think that we look like we really look in the mirror. But inwardly, it's actually worse. James says we deceive our own heart. If we say we are religious but we are full of anger, we never serve the needy, and we are absorbed by the things of this world, James says our religion is worthless. Now, James is not using a guilt trip to try and shock his congregation into doing right. Fear and guilt... Never change the human heart. Write it down. Fear and guilt never change the human heart. It works great on a four-year-old, I promise. I can get my four-year-old to do just about anything I want by, in, by putting a little fear out there. Shame works pretty good too. Church family, oh my goodness, how dare you not do what you should have done? You should be ashamed of yourself. But fear and guilt and shame never change the human heart. Look up at the board up here. I can change the speed limit and people will slow down, but I haven't changed their desire to speed. Quick question. Why are they slowing down? Someone yell it out. Say again fear. They don't want to get a ticket. You haven't changed their desire, nada, zero, none, zilch. You just put a little fear in there and boom, you got them to conform. You changed their behavior. You didn't change their heart. 
James is not trying to get the behavior of his congregants to change. He is trying to, he's trying to get them to change what they believe in, what they hope in. Every behavioral problem is a failure to grasp the love of God. It is a trust problem. Every single addiction, every single failure, every single fear, every single worry that you have, its very root is you don't trust God. We fulfill the lusts of our flesh because we believe the lie of Satan and we don't have wisdom and truth which reveal Satan's lies to us. Man, sin is so stupid, but we keep falling for it. We keep believing it. Elijah, behind this door over here, is the most beautiful girl in the world. She already has a ring in hand waiting for you. She's going to propose to you. You don't even need to propose to her. You go through that door. There she is. Happily ever after, you're good to go. Now, mom whispers over in the ear and says, Actually, Elijah, uh, there's an angry tiger out there. And he's about to literally rip your head off. Now, one of those is true. And one of those is a lie. And when his mother tells him the truth, how many of you understand that the lie just lost all of its desire? He doesn't desire the thing that's not true because he sees its foolishness because he is given wisdom. Why is it that we keep falling over and over and over and over for the same dumb, ridiculous tactics of Satan? We're foolish and we need wisdom. Because when God whispers that wisdom in your ear... Boom, you don't desire it anymore. But we're always going to do the thing we desire the most. I've said this before. I absolutely love ice cream. People don't believe me when I say this. I say, I, I, I tell people I have ice cream every evening and they chuckle like I'm lying to them. I'm not lying. I have ice cream every evening. There's only one time when I stop having ice cream is when I have someone come up to me and ask me if I've gained a little weight. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And occasionally, I will stop eating ice cream because I have a greater desire, which is to be thin. Now, here's the question, church. Did I say no to the ice cream? No. I said yes to being thin. You will always do the thing that you desire the most. And you might, you might say no to one thing, but you're actually saying yes to something that you desire more. So how on God's green earth are we going to say no to Satan's temptations? Real simple. Wisdom. Wisdom helps you and I to differentiate between what's true and what's not true... And slowly but surely, the, the religious person that we think we are 
and who God knows we are begins to come together. And by the way, if you heard anything I just said and think to yourself, whew, that's exactly what I've done. That's why I am such a wonderful person. You missed the whole point. There's literally nothing about the Christian life that we can stand and boast about. And boasting itself is a temptation that we've just fallen to. I saved myself and I am such a great, wonderful person. If you're listening to this sermon and right now you are thinking to yourself, Scott, my faith is not in God alone. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I am regularly lured and enticed by my desires and I give in. Scott, I do. If you're thinking to yourself that your actions don't match what you say you believe, I want to tell you this morning, you are in a great, great place. Your heart is tender. You have acknowledged your need for grace. You have acknowledged your need for mercy. And you have acknowledged your need for wisdom. Now act upon God's love. I'm all done. In the handout, I left three things that I want us to ask ourselves at the conclusion of this sermon. Number one. Do I view trials as an opportunity to see where I am not trusting God? Oh my goodness, I don't know why this is happening to me. It just seems like nothing can go right in my life right now. Do you ever feel that way? Let me newsflash here. If you have four kids, it happens about once every hour. Which is why I have a cozy office and I leave the kids with Christy, but neither here nor there. (laughs) When trials come in your life, I know this is almost impossible to do, but James actually says, get excited about it. Because you're about to have put in your face a mirror. And by the way, you're not going to like what you see, but it's going to be good for you. Number two. Am I daily seeking God's wisdom in prayer and through his word? And if not, why? Why is it that you are not regularly reading the word of God? Now, maybe you had a dad like I had. Had a great dad, by the way. How many of you, your dad used to ask you if you read your Bible that day? Anybody? Put your hand up. Good. We've got several of you. My dad used to open the door to my room and he'd say, Scott, did you read your Bible today? Well, I found the real quick fix for that. In the morning, I would just open it up and read two verses and then I could say yes. My dad was changing the speed limit, but it was doing nothing for me on the inside. Until... As a 21-year-old man. I 
I understood for the first time in my life the grace of God. Church, I have so many of you come up to me and you say, oh man, Scott, you are such a great missionary and boy, we love you and you're Church, you don't get it. I am screwed up. I need help. And when you're brought to the low position of realizing who you are, boy, do you need God. Church, I don't want to stand up here this morning and just yell in your face, if you're not reading your Bible, you need to come up here and get right with God. No, church, I want to humbly present something to you. If you're not reading your Bible, something's wrong. I don't want to make you feel guilty or fear. I'm just saying something's wrong because this is the source of wisdom. And if you are passionately pursuing your Savior, you're going to have the same sentiment that David had when David said, Oh, it's sweet as honey. Oh, he loved it. He loved God's words. In one sense, you hate God's word because you, you, you constantly are told that you're wrong. But in another sense, it's so wonderful because you know that your lovingly heavenly Father is shaping you and molding you. Number three, where in my life do my actions not reflect what I think I believe? There might be someone in the room today and you say, Scott, when you talk about that moment as a 21-year-old where you understood the grace of God and where you cried out to him for help and you were born again, you say, Scott, when you talk about that, I've never had that. Boy, I hope today would be the day. Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks and he says if anyone will open the door and let me come in I'm going to come in and we're going to have a party that's my translation Jesus wants to save you he wants to be your king and he wants you to be a citizen in heaven and you don't come at it by being religious or moralistic you come at it by humbling yourself and crying to God for salvation maybe you're here this morning and you say Scott I know for sure that I am in Christ can I ask you if your actions back that up and what I'm not implying is that maybe you're not saved. What I am implying is that you trusted God for eternal salvation, but possibly you and I, after that, fail to continue that trust. God has your best interest in mind. He passionately loves you, and He has a plan and a purpose for you. Act upon it today. Because 
Jane says, only those who ask are going to receive this wisdom. You sit there in your pew, and you hear Scott preach, and you think, man, that all was great, but you never cry out for God's help. Worthless. The religion is worthless. Cry to him for help because he is so ready to help you. Church family, would you stand with me?